in chapter 1 of the book of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah graduate from the University of Babylon with full honors. Y'all remember it? Where they stood for Christ in the midst of a uh, acculturation attempt on their lives, and yet they stood uh, the test. Daniel and all three of his friends were promoted and even graduated after three years from a secular university, right? And still came forth with their faith in hand and in tow. This is the last time in chapter 3 that we're actually going to hear of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Here in chapter 3 we find these men and they have courage and they have conviction and they have commitment to the Lord. They certainly live out for us Philippians 1.21. Paul would say to us, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In the words of John Piper, that is the ultimate win-win scenario to live in. For me to walk through this life is to live for Jesus Christ and to honor Him. For me to live is Christ. And to die is to be ushered into the very presence of Jesus. How can we lose? Amen? We can't. It's the ultimate win-win scenario. We live walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, and in death we're ushered into His presence. So in chapter 1, they take a stand. They were not seduced by the culture, and God blessed them for it. Chapter 2, they join Daniel before the throne of the Lord. Remember that? And they pray for a first king's uh, Solomon's type prayer that God would show compassion and mercy to them knowing that there's an edict that had gone out and all the astrologers and enchanters and diviners everybody was going to be killed because no one could interpret the dream yet God has ultimate wisdom and he gave Daniel the ability to know the dream and to interpret it Grant, God grants him compassion and grace <clears throat> and Daniel receives from the Lord the content what a blessing that is. And guess what? At the end of chapter 2, they all get promotions again. That's wonderful, isn't it? That God blessed them in that way. When you get to chapter 3, these guys are going to be directly thrown into the midst of the fiercest trial they had ever known. Yet God was preparing them for this particular moment the whole time. Don't forget this. This is something we all need to consider. That you can rest assured that if Almighty God is working in your life, then He is always preparing you for what comes next. Amen. You can rest assured that's the case. Young people and old people alike, uh, you probably will not face in your lifetime a burning, fiery furnace. But you can be guaranteed that if you pursue Jesus Christ with your life, and you seek to honor Him with your life, you can rest assured that you will be tested on this earth. Timothy and Peter remind us that if you seek to live godly in this present age for Christ, you will, not maybe, not could, but if you seek to live godly, you will be persecuted for the name of Christ. So what can we learn from Daniel chapter 3 about the title of the sermon, which is called Faith Standing? What can we learn? Well, ultimately, here's the central proposition. Because of the presence of Jesus Christ with us, 
and his work for us. Believers can have courage to resist the gods of this world and testify of the only God that does exist. The one and true God. In this case, it's going to be faith standing against fire. In the face of fire. So, today instead of reading the entire narrative in one, at one time, let me read you like 1 through 7, 8 through 12, 13 down through say 18 and then to the end of the chapter and kind of preach as a running commentary. But you know me well enough to know when we get to the end we'll have a couple of real important applicational points. Okay, So let's first begin reading 1 through 7 in Daniel chapter 3. You ought to know this story, right? You know this story. Let's ask the Lord to speak. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So in 1 through 7, they're confronted with idolatry. Is that not true? They're confronted, uh, those three Hebrews are con- confronted with idolatry. And what are they going to do about it? Now my question is, how much time has elapsed from chapter 2 to the scene that we have in chapter 3? There's a lot of conjecture, but what I've read and probably happened was a good three to maybe even eight years. Uh, that's how much time could possibly have gone by. It could have been less, but, but uh, I think a significant amount of time has passed or elapsed. In the original image of chapter 2, the head of which Nebuchadnezzar represented with the Babylonian Empire was made of what? Gold, correct? So the head represented Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. So on the basis of the dream and its interpretation, I think it is safe for all of us to say that Nebuchadnezzar had a desire to tweak the future. I mean, here's a megalomaniac who's just heard the God of the universe say that that image of gold is coming down. As a matter of fact, that stone cut without hands, who is the Lord Jesus Christ and the messianic kingdom that will have no end, he heard all that. It's pretty interesting that that little stone is never mentioned, right? 
or that stone cut is never mentioned here by Nebuchadnezzar. But he wants to tweak his future. So he builds a 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide image. Now if you think about this for a moment, it kind of looks like the space shuttle, doesn't it? I mean, it really does compared to the height versus the width of it. It's a colossus. It is made of, of, of an image <clears throat> likened to Nebuchadnezzar uh, as much as possible from head to toe. The interesting thing about the location, did anybody note this? The plain of Dura was, in fact, the very same place where they erected the Tower of Babel. Isn't this interesting? Nebuchadnezzar is doing something that the United Nations would approve of. Is he not? He's building a grand unifying focus to his kingdom. He builds the entire statue out of gold because he doesn't want there to ever be an end to his kingdom. He wants the glory to last forever. Now why would Nebuchadnezzar turn right around and contradict chapter 2 verse 47? Verse 47 of chapter 2. Why would he do this? Why would he direct, why would he contradict the Lord God and erect a statue of himself clearly after God has said that statue will not stand, that kingdom will not stand? Well, the answer is simple. That was just a temporary setback to his superficial goal of becoming self-glorified. It's about his self-glorification as a king. So we know his soul is not converted at this point, right? It's not. Uh, his response personifies the words of Friedrich Nietzsche. You know this guy who used to live, year, live years ago when he said, If there is a God, I cannot bear not to be that God. That was kind of the understanding that Nebuchadnezzar lived with. In verses 2 and 3, it's time for the service of dedication to this 90 foot tall, 9 feet wide edifice built for Nebuchadnezzar. Now folks, when you encounter repetition in the Bible, it's significant. It repeats certain things so that you get what's going on. And so I want you to understand that the repetition is vitally important where they, they mention the governors and the assistants and the prefects and they mention all the musical instruments uh, twice. Why? Because they're wanting the, the writer is wanting you to understand the magnitude of this particular event and what leads us to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known to you as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and what they actually did and what they were actually facing. So the word statue alone or image occurs ten times. The writer is wanting you to think about that. And so, as one writer says, the reason he wants you to pay attention is because of the very first commandment that God gives to Moses on Mount Sinai. Can anybody in here understand what that is or remember? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall know other gods before me. The Hebrew translates... You shall have no gods before my face or before the face of me. So this episode is, is built up with repetition for a purpose. Why? He wants us to have the same response that the three Hebrews did regarding this number one commandment. Not to have any gods before him. And I believe uh, your response should be, I believe and I obey the very first commandment even if it kills me. 
and it may. So he repeats to bureaucrats, everybody that's in, involved. He, he repeats to musical instruments that were played. There's repetition and phrase after phrase. There's even going to be the repetition of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego once you start down from, chapter, from verse 8. And all of this created the scenery where conformity is going to be mandatory. Everybody's going to fall suit and do this. And disobedience at this point would be absolutely unthinkable. The enormity of the pressure on these Hebrews. We just read it today and we're like, oh yeah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, big old statue, wow. Well, you don't think about the Hebrew, and you don't think about the repetition, and you don't think about what this actually would have looked like. The pressure upon these guys was immense, and it can't be overstated. All the high and mighty officials were there, and everybody was commanded to bow down. Shouldn't everybody do it? They were commanded to. Now, there's also a kind of reversal of the Tower of Babel, where they sought to build it toward the heavens and reach God or be like God. And God dispersed and scattered the languages. By the way, Acts 2 is the bringing back of a, of a language where people would hear. Now, your charismaniacs think tongues has to do primarily with an ecstatic utterance, but I beg to differ. It has with God reversing Babel so that people understood the gospel in their own language. Hello, Tokyo, right? But here, there's... Nebuchadnezzar seemingly bringing together all the peoples and all the nations and all the languages. Just check this out. This is multilingual. This is multi-international. And they bring the group together. And how nice and beautiful is this? They're going to throw all their differences aside and they're going to worship. Isn't that nice? It is. It's so sweet. Now the king, of course, is serious about this. And in verse 6, we find that there's going to be a place reserved for the dissenters. Correct? Mandatory command. You've got to bow down. And if you don't, you're going to burn. Now, you, in other words, you can be whatever religion you want to be. But you're going to worship what we want you to worship right now. And you're going to subordinate your beliefs to this grand theme of the day. Oh, are we reading about the U.S.? Correct? If you are thinking about refusing to bow, we've got a reminder over here. And this is where you're going to go if you refuse. So you have a choice. You can be a good Babylonian today, and you can worship this image, and you can show your allegiance, or you can refuse, and you get the furnace. Everybody's going to worship today, no matter what you believe was the goal. And this is what, this is some kind of awesome scene of world peace at last. World peace at last. John Lennon would have been stoked about this. Would he not? Nebuchadnezzar has pulled off the impossible. But what it really is, according to 1 John and Revelation, is the mystery of lawlessness already at work in the spirit of the Antichrist. Anytime anything is said about laying aside your worship and your differences and everybody just coming together and pluralistically and uh, having universally just worship uh, whoever you want to on your own. But, but let's just have everybody come together, folks. That's the spirit of lawlessness. That's the spirit of the Antichrist at work in this world. This is also one day what will happen in this world before Jesus comes back. Right? On a grander scale. 
Uh, this is going to actually happen many, many times after Daniel, after Nebuchadnezzar. Many, 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 many times in history. Tyrants and dictators will seek to do the same thing over and over again. He got a unifying symbol and the gesture of allegiance. And then he watched for the dissenters. Is that not true as you look through history and society? But here's the twist of the story, beginning in verse 8. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. This is probably a normal way that you would brown nose a king. O earthly king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, again, repetition is important, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning fiery furnace. O king, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed. Notice that. Who appointed them? O king Neb himself over the, over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So here are a group of Chaldeans who come. They're in, they're in the same sect, S-E-C-T, of Daniel, right? Uh, they're, uh, they're supposed to be able uh, to help the king out in interpretation of certain things. They're the uh, 1-800 numbers of the day, right? Uh, they're the... They're the king's ensemble with new age terminology. But we know that they failed. But here's the deal. They come forward and they say, hey king, uh, you appointed these guys. Oh, oh great king, they're appealing to him. But there are certain Jews that you have actually appointed. They've disregarded you. And so they're appealing to his megalomania. Who he is, his person. You appointed them, they're not doing what you're asked. You know, Read between the lines. They're so ungrateful to you. You've been good to them. You promoted them. And yet, they're not going to bow down. They're, they're, they're showing ingratitude. They're disrespecting you. Well, a megalomaniac can't take this. Right? He says to them, these guys are impious. They're not going to honor the God you set up. They're not going to worship your God. They're dissing you and your gods. Now, what was their motivation? Oh, they were jealous, were they not? Think about this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego made better grades than they did. Y'all read chapter 1, right? I mean, it would be easy for them to say, good night. Not only that, but they're foreigners. They're foreigners, and they made better grades, they got better jobs, and they're foreigners. Well, in verse 13, we see the king's response. Guys tick. Right? Look at it. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought, so that they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, now notice this, doesn't really matter uh, if they serve Yahweh God or not, the only God that exists. That's okay. That's not the point. The point is, now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, anybody getting this repetition? And every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well, well, well and good. I mean, 
just lay aside the Jesus thing at this point and just bow down for the sake of the day. Probably in the back of Nebuchadnezzar's mind, he's thinking, you know, I gave you all these promotions and I don't want to just squash you and kill you, but here's the deal. You better in front of all these officials bow down when I tell you to or else. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. Ooh, look what he says. This is one of those open mouth insert boot. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So the dictator goes into a rage. He's furious. Instead of chopping off their heads, he makes them an offer they can't refuse. We're going to do it one more time, guys. Out on the plain of Dura, in front of this image, we're going to give you one more chance. I'm giving you a simple loyalty test. He's not even asking them to renounce their God. All he wants them to do is bow down when you hear the music. Forget about all the other stuff. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, at this point, did not even care about the sincerity. It's just show up, bow down, and go off for the next day. But verse 15 gives us a glimpse in the condition of his heart. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Y'all do know that Nebuchadnezzar still believed that his false gods, G, small g, small s on the end, were still superior to any gods. Folks, we know there are no other gods, period. And chapter 1 would remind us that God gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. God delivered the Israelites up. And I think Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten that. Now, if you were in this position, what would you do? I mean, if you were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, this king already knows that Daniel's God is superior. Or he should know. But he doesn't because he's a megalomaniac, okay? He, he's not getting this. But here's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And here's a statue on one side. And here's a furnace on the other. I'm sure from the sense of the text, you might could feel the heat radiating from the furnace. And yet they're told, you will fall down and you will worship. They could have asked for more time to consider their options. That's probably what Baptists would do. Or just give me a... Uh, Neb, great king, just give me a few minutes to think about this. They could have reasoned together and thought about the culture. And they could have said, you know what? The only way to change this culture is to stay alive. If, uh, let's just bow down this one time, one time because if you're dead, you sure can't do nothing. Right? What will it hurt? We, we can still be an influence in the Babylonian kingdom, and we'll still be alive. And let's just bow down this one time. Another could have said this. Let's bow down on the outside, but let's stand up for Jesus on the inside. That's how some of you teenagers are at high school, right? I know. I went to high school one day. You know, it's been a long time ago, but I went. And I know, how, I know the ropes. Man, you don't want to be pegged as a Jesus fanatic. Which simply means someone loves Jesus more than you do, right? Well, it really does. If you're called a Jesus fanatic, then to God be the glory. If it's for His glory. But wouldn't it not be easy just to go along with the crowd? You know, there's some pretty heavy stakes here. <laughs> no pun intended. And not well done either, right? The fact of the matter is, uh, what would you have done? 
I don't know if y'all have thought about this lately, but this is not on the top five list for the ways I'd like to die. I don't really look forward to burning to death. In chapters 1 and 2, God prepared them for this moment. Don't forget that. God had already powerfully reminded them of His own power. So that they joined Daniel and they praised God who is absolutely sovereign and has all power over everything. So they stood there prepared because of all that God had done through them and for them through His Word. They took God at His Word. Remember what they quoted out of Solomon? His dedicatory prayer? God, we need mercy and compassion from you. And they prayed for it. Now, verse 18. 16, I'm sorry. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Wow. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't even have to give you an answer. The best rendering of verse 17 is, if we are thrown into the blazing fiery furnace well, or God, our God is able to deliver us, but we're not going to bow. You want to know what God can do, and that He can deliver. We know that God can deliver, but He may not. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will deliver us. Yet, here's the most important part of this faith posture that they have. God can do it. We don't doubt that for one second. But there's this, but if not, in verse 18. If He chooses us, chooses not to deliver us from your hand, we still will not bow. If God, who is able to rescue us in a dramatic fashion, does so, then praise God. But if He doesn't, we will still not, we will not worship this image. Now folks, is this the posture of the health and wealth, faith, movement that is out there in our world today? This is important for us to think about. This is a lot different from the name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, sneeze it, seize it type of faith movement that is out there in our world today. This posture of faith is different. It was undeterred. It was an undeterred commitment not to break the first commandment. We will not bow down. And to be faithful to God... No matter what the circumstances are. That's a different kind of faith. This but if not statement is not an expression of doubt. It is the ultimate expression of confidence and faith. God can, but will He? God has the power to do all things, but will He? The declaration is this. God can do what God wants to do, and we're going to trust Him no matter what. Now, our world doesn't like that. Americans want to be able to control God. We deserve this. We deserve America. We deserve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, I hope you realize how confused people are in this world when it comes to this perspective of faith. 
Some say real faith is to believe that God will heal you no matter what. And it's up to your faith in order to heal you. And if you were to die or not be healed from cancer, it's because you have a lack of faith. That's what the world, uh, that's what wolves in sheep's clothing tell you. That's what purveyors say. Those who distort the word of God for material gain, i.e. Paula White. All you got to do is send in X amount of dollars and we're going to give you the faith to, do, to move mountains. Did all people say amen? Right? If you just do this, God's going to double your money. We heard it the other day on TV, right, Natalie? We're going to do a triple blessing upon you. You're going to get tripled in all this stuff. You just got to believe. But by the way, small script on the bottom, fine print, which actually is bold print. Send in your money first. Right? People hold tenaciously to the fact that God will and is bound to do those things to you because you ask Him to. In other words, folks, this is not faith in God. This is faith in faith. Which is erroneous. It's faith in your ability to have faith. Do what? But that's exactly what it is. To trust God for who He is and what He can do is also to accept the fact, but if not... That's the true posture of faith. Natalie reads often Johnny Erickson Tata's book of devotionals. I would encourage you to do this. For 40 years, the woman has been basically an invalid because she dove into the water as an accomplished swimmer and, and it broke her spine all to pieces and she's been in a wheelchair. But if you read this, her posture of faith, oh, amazing. For 40 years, she's been like that. She could look around and say, why can't I walk? Why can't I do this? Why can't I do that? No, it's, it's God. I submit to the purposes of God for my life. He could heal me, but he chose not to. But I'm going to have this posture of faith. So here we have these three Hebrew men. And their confidence in God is amazing. They know that God is sovereign. And he will be glorified either by deliverance or by their death. Are you all getting this? Oh, king, we don't need to answer you in this. We know full well our God is able to deliver us, but if not, we will not bow down. God ultimately makes the choice whether you live or die. Do you have that kind of confidence in the Lord? Yet, the reality is, we will be faithful no matter what. That's the reality of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, whose names bear the name of God. They're going to stand no matter what. Okay. This reminds me of the fact that all of your theology can be narrowed down to, at times, one statement. And does that not narrow that theology down in what we believe? God, you can, but if you don't choose to, we're still going to worship you and we won't bow down to the idols of this world. Right? Reminds me of Peter's confession. Jesus said, who do you singularly, Peter? You. Say that I, the Son of Man, am. What does Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. What does Peter, what does Jesus tell Peter? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood cannot reveal that to you, but only my Father who is in heaven. Y'all getting that? Even the faith you have. It's not yours. You can't even identify Jesus, period, in life without the Father giving you understanding. 
You can't make that verse mean anything else. Flesh and blood. I wish I could deliver. I wish I could reveal to you that Jesus is Lord. I wish I could. But only God's Word through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Father bringing you to Jesus can open your eyes so that you identify who Jesus is. Peter got it right. He didn't get it half right, kind of right. He got it right. You are Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Father, He's the only one that can reveal that to you. How about Ezekiel? He's standing in a valley. It's like preaching to you guys. It's full of dead men's bones, right? And he's standing there. And, 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 and he says, how in the world can these bones come back together? You don't know what leg bone fits to this leg bone or this joint or this joint. And God says, stand up with the word. You remember what God says to him? Ezekiel, can these bones live? And what was his response? Oh God, only you know. He got it right. Can God do it? You better believe he can. He can speak life into a valley of dead, decaying bones with no sign of life. But will he? It's the right response, isn't it? You can, but will you? Wow, that's real theology that you live with, that hits you in your affections and moves you to serve God. All right, verse 19. Uh, it's getting late, isn't it? Yes, it is. Y'all got to go anywhere? I'll speed up and try to land the plane. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, he's, he's fired up. He's mad. Uh, don't think that the terminology means that there's a thermostat on the side of that uh, fiery furnace. and Just turn it up. I think the language matches his fury. I'm hot. I'm mad. Crank it up. Seven times hotter probably means make the thing as hot as you possibly can make it. Symbolism, metaphorical language. Forget the thing fired up and as hot as you possibly can get it. In other words, let that furnace feel the fury of my wrath. Just as I'm mad, I want that thing to be fired red. Mm. Well, in his fury, that's what happens. Somehow this furnace where they were dropped, let's read it. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed, contorted against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks. I mean, just took them right up, tunics and all, their hats and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men. The earthly king's men couldn't even survive. He had no power to save his own men. Oh, but the king of kings can do it. Right? Fire, those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were burned by the flames in throwing them in. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. So here's the rage. Their, uh, uh, their bodies are about to be incinerated. Uh, they know full well God has power, but will he act on their behalf? He's still God if he doesn't. And notice verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. Don't you love this part of the story? It's good stuff, right? And he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to, king, to the king, True, O king, you got it right. Just put three in. He answered and said, But I see four men. 
unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And their appearance, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. That's what he better say. Come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. Their hair of their heads was not even singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Y'all know how it is to walk through Bethlehem, right? We all stink. We all smell like smoke the whole time. Not these guys, right? Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. He got that right. Right? Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let me show you something that these men banked their hope on. Isaiah 43. Please mark this down. What did they live by in the face of knowing that an edict of death had gone out in chapter 2? What did they cling to? The Word of God and His promises. All right? What would you do? If you knew a fiery furnace was awaiting you, Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Ooh, that's good stuff, isn't it? Do you think that that was in the minds? Well, Isaiah's a contemporary. Jeremiah's contemporary. Do you think it's in the minds of these men that God said in his word? And it may be true for us today. That when you walk through the fire, it will not harm you. What an amazing understanding of the Word of God. They were resolute in their determination to obey God no matter what the cost was. How about the fourth man in the fire? Oh, how many songs have been written about this? Oh, there's a fourth man walking in the midst of the fern. You ever heard that? Yeah, I mean, there's been multiple songs written about this. Mm. Remember old Johnny Cash? Talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They wouldn't bow. They wouldn't bend. And they wouldn't burn. I was at the Southern Baptist Convention when Jerry Vines preached on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that was his three-point outline. He just borrowed it from old Johnny Cash. Wouldn't bow. Wouldn't bend. And wouldn't burn. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's theology is all messed up. Because he's a polytheist. And I can't prove this from the text or anywhere else in Scripture. But I believe the fourth man in the furnace was none other than the pre-incarnate son of the living God. I believe that. Get to heaven, I might find out I was, it, I was wrong. It certainly could have been an angel. Because uh, we'll talk about that tonight. Angelology in our doctrinal study. They certainly had the power to overcome this furnace. Uh, easily, right? But... Uh, Think about these guys climbing up out of there. Dude, were these fire-retard clothes? I mean, good night. Not even the smell of smoke. I can remember getting down in front of my grandmother's old space heaters 
get down on a knee, you know, and you take that gas and you begin to slightly turn it on while at the same time a long match is stuck up in those little crystallized things. Mm, that's not a good thing. I mean, five times out of ten, and I have no eyebrows, right? Just curled and singed. You know, back when I was 12, I had a little peach fuzz here, and it just curled it up. Hands, arms, just... But, but just think about this. The officials say, these guys don't even smell like smoke. How is this possible? The hair's not even singed. Mm. Well, any old knucklehead can be impressed with the miraculous. And there's no doubt that Nebuchadnezzar's impressed and everybody else. But you don't see radical conversion here. The crowds were impressed with the miracles of Jesus, too. But the Bible says in John 2, the very end, Jesus knew what was in their hearts and he did not commit himself to them. Ooh. They, the scripture says, and they believed. But then the text clarifies. They weren't believing in Jesus for salvation. They were simply believing that he was a great miracle worker. Uh, you may even believe that today, but God's never changed your heart because you haven't trusted Jesus as your Lord. You haven't identified with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The impression upon Nebuchadnezzar was only skin deep. That's hard to believe, isn't it? When you see something like this. Nebuchadnezzar probably had the attitude of the world. Glad your faith works for you. But I don't want to have any part of it at all. You know, he doesn't demand that the people worship their God. He just makes a blasphemy law. Did y'all notice that? He doesn't say, I command that everybody worships the God of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He actually just says, if you say anything bad against this God, you're going to get in trouble. Because he's just a God among many. So very quickly, two things. Number one, we must obey his sovereign commands. Is that pretty clear? In verses 8 through 12, he prepares them for what was coming. And they obeyed before, and they obeyed again. It's God's promises that they clung to. They clung to the faithfulness of God. That's what encouraged them to have present obedience. This is exactly where they found their motivation to obey God. They, ho- they had obeyed Him in the past uh, faithfully. They had seen the Lord God work. And they trusted Him. It was God's promises and His faithfulness in the past. They could actually say that we don't even need to think about this. Kids, older people, wouldn't it be awesome if we're tempted or if we are tempted to bow, to worship, or, or to disobey the Lord. We don't even have to think about it. But it's not going to do it. Why? Because our God has made us a promise. His track record is perfect, and He's sovereign. And we don't want to disobey our God. He's been faithful. And again, we probably won't face something like this. But you have a thousand opportunities every day to bow down to idols, to succumb to temptations, to compromise our worship to the King. We have these without even the threat of a fiery furnace. How about that little bit of pleasure? Smoking what you smoke, drinking what you drink, hanging out with the crowd you hang out with. Oh God, right? Daniel chapter 1, what was it that they said no to? Not necessarily the alcohol, but that sensualistic, anti-God culture that was there. They said no to that. Absolutely not. We're not going to go along with the crowd, but we're going to make and take our stand. That little bit of pleasure of unfaithfulness to your wife, or, or, or anything like that. Oh, it sin's fun for a while. Look, folks, when it's full-blown, it's death. Are y'all, anybody getting this? But here they obeyed the sovereign commands of the Lord. 
We'll be faithful to obey by your grace. And we won't bow down by your grace. You know, there's a time to disobey civil authorities. I'm trying to land the plane. I'm circling. All right. Acts 5, 29. It's better to obey God than man. And these guys would not be civil at this particular point. They would not bow down. Uh, They chose to defy the king in order to obey the king of kings. And we all have to do this if we belong to the Lord. There's coming a day when we will have to make some these kinds of decisions. You know, people in China make this decision every day on the hideous, uh, satanic, one-child policy. They're having to take that stand every single day. The day is coming when you're going to have to uh, choose to obey God or the governing authorities. Are you determined not to bow? So, obey His sovereign commands. Finally, we must trust His sovereign will. The most incredible thing about this passage is not the faith of these men. The most incredible thing is we serve a God who delivers His people. Our God delivers His people. The entire history of redemption proves that God is in the mode of delivering His people. And you can put your trust in His sovereign will. And the greatest act of deliverance that could ever be given to you is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's one thing to to escape the fires of a furnace. But think about eternal torment forever. Where the worm never dies. And I've had people tell me, I believe in annihilationism. You can have all the religious stuff. When I die, I'm just going to cease to exist. That's not true. Your soul is going to live forever in heaven or hell. It's not true to think when you close your eyes in death, it's all over. It's not all over. Don't believe the lie of the enemy. The thief cometh not but to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. Look at the past faithfulness of our God through the cross. That's all the motivation you need to trust Him every single moment of your life. God, you were so faithful for me on the cross where you bore my sins in your body on the tree. Colossians 2. Think about that. What a transaction for him to bear your sins upon himself. And in turn, when you put your faith and trust in him, he gives you his righteousness. That's the greatest insurance policy that can ever be given, right? The righteousness of Jesus given to you. And you can actually experience the greatest deliverance of all today. The bondage of your sin being removed. That's awesome, isn't it? By putting your faith in the mighty deliverer, the Son of God. Great God, we bow before you. And Lord, I know that this is a lot in chapter 3. It's almost like we'd like to break it up in parts and preach it. But Lord, it's just too good to do, in, to do that with. We've got to get to the end of the story. You're the deliverer. The Father, think about that posture of faith for all of us. Help us see that. God, you can, but will you? You're still God, even if you don't respond. Your ways are far above ours. Not only are you good, as the psalmist said, but you do all things good. God, help us to think about that today. If there's someone who is lost, Father, would you help them see the greatest deliverance of all was the cross of Christ in order to forgive us of our sins, and you proved it by your resurrection. For Christians today, Lord, help us to become tired of being stirred And hearing a message like this and start being changed. God, help us to obey your word. 
to have in the back of our minds and hearts all the time that to obey you is better than sacrifice. And ultimately, to be in the orbit of your blessing and grace, it demands that we obey. And all the things of this world will grow strangely dim. They'll become unattractive to us as a way to get our kicks accomplished. And we'll find our kicks with you, our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.